Um, welcome, everybody. We just have a few moments to go until 8.30 when the uh, webinar is due to start. Um, my name is Mike Wardle. Um, we'll be introducing other members of the panel in just a moment. Um, and so we are ready to uh, begin. So uh, very many, well, <clears throat> very big welcome to this webinar to launch the fifth edition of the Global Green Finance Index. Um, the GGFI is um, being published today uh, amidst uh, a strange time in the world in terms of uh, what we are experiencing in terms of the spread of the coronavirus. Uh, I'm very glad that you're able to uh, join us and thank you for making time in what must be a very busy moment for everybody. Um, our agenda today is um, first a welcome from George Littlejohn, uh, Senior Advisor at the Chartered Institute for Securities and Investment, for hosting us today. A keynote presentation from Lois Guthrie of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development, followed by the presentation of the index results. Um, so without any further ado, I'd like to pass over to George Littlejohn uh, for some words of welcome. Thank you, Mike, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to the launch of the fifth edition of GGFI, which is a glimpse into a brighter future in these very dark days. I'm honored to be here. ZEN's work is really a beam of sunshine in this mounting gloom. It's less than a month ago, on the 27th of February, when we heard Mark Carney, then Governor of the Bank of England, at the Guildhall in London, announcing his path to Glasgow. November's COP26 climate summit in my native Glasgow could be the making of many of the centres covered in this relatively new index, a younger sibling of the long-established Global Financial Centres Index, now in its 27th edition. That will be launched instantly in 20, 48 hours' time on Thursday morning. Details are on the ZN website. At the Guildhall, the governor said that finance is the COP26 deliverable that makes all the others, adaptation and resilience, nature, energy transition and clean road transport possible. Well, as a result of the COVID-19 crisis, it's resilience that for the moment dominates our everyday lives. Best estimates suggest that investors controlling over $40 trillion in assets want to see transition plans to a low carbon world from their portfolio companies. As Mr. Carney said, achieving net zero will require a whole economy transition. Every company, every investor, every bank, every insurer has to adjust their business models. His words were, this could turn an existential risk into the greatest commercial opportunity of our time. Well, we seem to be long on existential risks at the moment, but the challenges and opportunities of responsible finance remain. CISI is a global professional body with some 50,000 members. Michael Manelli, who will speak later, is one of our most distinguished honorary fellows. We're formerly part of London Stock Exchange. Our members work in wealth management and investment banking, and so are directly responsible for helping allocate capital to manage risks and seize opportunities across the global economy. Lois will be speaking shortly about the three R's, reporting, risk management, and return, that need actions, um, not just on the, Mr. Carney's road to Glasgow, but ahead of that. And the CISI, in common with other major professional bodies, is focusing on them to help unlock the private financial flows that are vital to the transition. Um, let us now welcome the first of today's experts, Lois Guthrie, a director at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development's Redefining Value Programme. Before joining WBCSD, Lois was a tax advisor with PwC, my old shop, and Zurich Insurance Company. She simultaneously pursued a career in climate and natural capital reporting with CDP, the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, and the International Integrated Reporting Council. Enjoy this webcast. It will be fascinating. Mike, back to you, and thank you all. George, and over to Lois. Thank you very much for your introduction, George, and thank you, um, ZN, for inviting me to participate in this webinar to launch the new Global Green Finance Index. If we can have the next slide, please. Um, today, I just have 10 minutes in which I'll cover five points. A little bit of context setting about the role of green finance, one minute on WBCSD, then a look at the activities we've been conducting to support the implementation of the recommendations from the Task Force on Climate Related Financial Disclosure, the TCFD. The last main point will look at how WBCSD member companies are developing financial instruments, investments and project financing designed to achieve sustainable outcomes. And I'll end with some brief conclusions. So on to the next slide, please. 
So as George has already noted, finance is the lever that makes all other climate deliverables possible. It's got the power to transform activity and behaviour, to amplify effectiveness of government policy and enable and accelerate the transition to the low carbon economy, which is all important. So as George said, Governor Carney has identified three priorities for identifying which organisations are ready for the transition and which are not. Reporting, particularly according to the TCFD recommendations, understanding climate risk and managing it, and returns. At WBCSD, we have projects focused on TCFD reporting and risk management, and in the latter case, applying the COSO Enterprise Risk Management Guidelines to ESG issues. Of course, as we all know, there, there are barriers to um, achieving these objectives, including the lack of speed of action, which could cause more significant disruption in the long term, inconsistent ESG measurement and disclosure, short-termism, lack of forward-looking information, and as Governor Carney has mentioned in his speeches, the binary nature of taxonomies and uh, bond standards whereby they look at brown and green and dark, that's even black investments, um, and really need to be more nuanced to look at the what he calls the uh, 50 shades of green. Of course, the final thing to mention there is the scale of investment required is huge, estimated at $3.5 trillion in infrastructure investment required every year for decades. So on to the next slide, please. Just a little bit about WBCSD which is a global CEO-led organisation of 200 businesses that work together to accelerate the transition to a sustainable world by making more sustainable businesses more successful and creating a world where by 2050, 9 billion people live well within the planet's boundaries. The circle on the right-hand side summarises the six programmes we operate in order to advance our mission and vision and uh, the programme. So on to the next slide, please. In, in our Redefining Value programme, one of our activities focuses on how six high impact sectors are implementing the TCFD's recommendations. We were invited by the TCFD Secretariat to facilitate small groups of leading companies that we call preparer forums to look at how they're already responding to the TCFD's recommendations, what challenges they face and what opportunities they identify for enhancing disclosure over time. So preparer forums for the oil and gas sector, the electric utilities and chemical industries have already completed their, their work. They're the um, three uh, listed on the left-hand side of the slide. And you can find the resulting reports, uh, little pictures of which are on the right-hand slide, side of the slide on WBCSD's website. Each report contains examples of current effective disclosure practice. Um, we're hoping to issue the Construction and Building Materials Forum and the Food, Agriculture and Forest Products report within the next few weeks. And we hope to work with the auto industry later in the year. Now, importantly, as you all know, the TCFD recommendations are designed to elicit information from companies for an investor audience to inform their decision making. So as part of each prepare forum work, although we were focused on the actions of companies, we did hold informal discussions with a small selected group of investors in order to understand their information needs on the actions companies are taking to address climate change. And the investor views are summarized in the reports too. So if we move on to the next slide, you can imagine that there are many, many things we covered, but for the purposes of this webinar, I've picked out the things that seem to be um, of particular interest to investors. We heard from them that their decision-making is assisted and enhanced by access to quantitative information. And particularly, you know, as George has, has mentioned, resilience, of course, is the issue of the day. And certainly this is something we discovered since working um, on our first uh, preparer forum. So the, the, the quantitative information that investors are keen to receive shows the company's flexibility, their transition plan, and how it is to be executed. 
And the examples that I've extracted from the report identify the metrics that companies are using to disclose and explain this, to give evidence of their transition plans. Now, I'm, I'm afraid that the examples that you have before you from our oil and gas preparer forum report are now a bit out of date. They are mostly taken from 2017 annual reports, but they're designed to show what companies think is necessary to demonstrate um, resilience to direct and indirect climate risks. So at the top left, you'll see an extract from Shell's energy transition report, which shows how diversity in their portfolio provides resilience through price cycles. The bottom left example is from Shell's sky scenario, showing the different types of and degrees of action that are, is required to reach the Paris goals. In the top right hand corner, we have an extract from Eni's path to decarbonisation report that includes many metrics, including the level of green investment, total R&D, expenditure related to decarbonisation, uncommitted investments available for flexibility and adaptability, a stress test um, applied to upstream portfolio resilience and its impact on asset fair value and carbon pricing impacts. And finally, um, on the bottom right, we have an extract from Equinor's Socially Responsible Investment Day, showing stress testing under various scenarios, how CO2 costs are embedded in investment decisions and so on. Now, the reason I show these is um, to show that the, the extent to which companies are devising ways of demonstrating their resilience and evidencing their plan and how they are executing it. On the next slide, just very briefly, you'll see that we had similar evidence from the chemicals and electric utilities industries, where you can see here um, examples from DSM, Enel and BASF that show how growth and revenue is linked to strategic plans and opportunities with specific sustainability outcomes at their core, how investments are being made to support that, how assets and products are being developed and innovation leveraged to support new business models and, and financial stability and uh, response to predicted climate risks. So just to end this section on the TCFD uh, work that we're doing with the next slide, please, Mike. Uh, in summary, uh, the companies that we've worked with are already actively implementing the TCFD recommendations so far as they can. They're building internal capacity, developing their capabilities, setting up cross um, and interdisciplinary processes, working with academics, with uh, others, and developing their internal cultures to respond to climate and sustainability threats. They're sharing knowledge and expertise within and outside their organizations. And certainly the food and agriculture and construction companies have said to us, that really a value chain approach is essential to understanding corporate actions and challenges. As Mark Carney has said, it's essential that companies show their plans and that that's what they're trying to do, as well as how they're maximizing opportunity and financing that. You can see on the right-hand side, a list of challenges. I won't go through these in the interest of time because some of them will be familiar to you, but uh, the com companies of course are struggling with exactly what, what is an established measure of strategic resilience? How should it be disclosed? We've seen some examples, we have some ideas, but I think the important thing now is to establish the dialogue with investors to address these challenges and to develop the progress that's already been made. So that there you have a list of the challenges. If we could move on, please, just to um, look at something else in the uh, WBCSD community. This is just a little look at the ESG financing options being put in place by some of our, our members. And, and one of the things that they refer to by way of evidence of their sustainable activities. So we see, again, this is slightly out of date, but we see about $68 billion in ESG linked uh, debt securities being issued by our WBCSD member companies across different um, uh, bonds, loans, credit facilities and, and other financing options. If we look at the next slide, I've just um, filleted out four uh, case study examples. We, we have others to show the degree and type of activity 
um, the 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 uh, Ibridrola, I think, has been pioneering green finance since 2014. As a renewable energy company, all the financing is fo for here is focused on renewable energy production, energy efficiency, and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we also have an example from uh, the uh, Nordic forestry company Stora Enzo, whose financing is focused on reducing greenhouse gas emissions per tonne of pulp, paper and board produced, and on science-based targets, sustainable forest management, regeneration of forests. And, and we have two other examples um, on the screen from Toyota and Friesland. Uh, about the activities that they're taking, undertaking and the objectives that they seek to achieve. On the next slide, uh, you can see that um, the, you can see the leading financial institutions that have been involved in um, the, the types of bonds that we're describing. Um, so I think the top five are HSBC, Credit Agricole, BNP Paribas, ING and Societe Generale. And, and also many of um, our members are taking action to, to verify uh, the, the, the application of, of their, um, their financing activities to the objectives that they seek to achieve. So on the next slide, um, I think we should, yes, I just wanted to talk a little bit finally about what we're looking at next. Of course, there are a number of things. And because of the desire we've heard or demand we've heard for metrics, I just wanted to look a little bit at what we think could be done to enhance um, climate related financial metrics. In each of the reports that we've produced for TCFD preparer forums, we have um, developed what the TCFD has already offered in its final report and annex to show what companies think um, is relevant to their industries in terms of metrics and we really welcome feedback from the finance community and we're seeking to develop some of these themes particularly by looking at things like the purpose of metrics, distinguishing between metrics that are designed to um, respond or manage to risk, look at the um, how metrics signal uh, how, how growth is to be secured through innovation and the development of new products and services and, and leverage financial metrics where possible and in particular clarify mainstream use cases to encourage certain uh, behaviours. I think the next slide is my final one Mike, just say conclusions, yes. I mean some of you might have seen um, been various articles recently about what green finance needs to do, in particular one from Ben Caldicott um, in the IPE magazine and I've sort of tried to summarise what I've been seeing in the literature recently including from Ben that there's more to be done. There's a lot of progress being made but we now need actions that make a clear additional, additional and measurable difference. We need method methodologies that enable impacts to be observed and reliably measured. Taxonomies that are more nuanced, that develop understandings of green finance and communicate what is to be signalled through corporate activities more clearly to investors. Evidence about how investor decisions influence the course of the real economy and of course all of this to be supported by dialogue between users and suppliers of capital. So just a closing thought from me to end this webinar, I'm sure that as we are, you know, many of us in in lockdown mode where we're having an opportunity to think and, and to read and I think um, Mike and Michael are going to come on to look at the wealth of research that's in the in the public domain and perhaps it's it's you know a good time for us to reflect on how how we can leverage all that good thinking uh, to to um, to address the, the challenges that we're discussing today so I'll, I'll end there and wish you all well in, in these troubling times. Thank you very much, Lois. Um, to all of us, if you do have any questions for the panel, uh, we are planning there will be some time at the end of the uh, presentation, um, and we may be able to answer some of those questions during the webinar. Uh, you can submit a question um, by using the dashboard uh, to the side of your screen. Uh, there's a questions box, and you can uh, post a question there and towards the end of the session um, we'll cover as many points as we can. <clears throat>
So um, a little bit about um, ZN and the Global Green Finance Index. Uh, the index is part of the Long Finance Program uh, run by ZN. Uh, the program of work aims to look at the question of when would we know our financial system is working, uh, including the uh, nature of sustainable finance, green finance, responsible finance, uh, depending on how you uh, choose to define it. Um, other parts of the uh, long finance program look at uh, the role of technology and science um, and the role of uh, long-term economic thinking uh, in terms of supporting the financial system. Uh, we're well known at ZN for doing research uh, into financial centres, both uh, the Global Green Finance Index, but also uh, the Global Financial Centres Index, um, and indeed other research projects that we uh, undertake into what makes uh, cities uh, financial centres uh, work well. As well as publishing research uh, into finance, economics, technology, science and sustainability, uh, we provide information services through the Financial Service Club bulletin system. Um, this is a system which um, is a forward-looking <clears throat> information and news uh, search. And for each of the bulletins, we choose a particular topic, such as this example of sustainable finance. Um, and the re research results returned uh, don't simply give you the title of the article that's been published, but actually summarize the article uh, through a piece of machine learning that uh, uh, goes through the article and comes up with its own summary. There's around 200 topics available for investigation um, and please do get in touch if you are interested uh, in following that up or simply sign up on the subscription you can see on screen. <clears throat> on the Global Green Finance Index itself, um, <clears throat> the initiative is sponsored by the Marva Foundation in Switzerland um, through its uh, program on the sustainable economy. And our aims in publishing the index are to encourage financial centres to become greener, uh, the financial system to deliver sustainability, um, encourage both collaboration and competition um, in and amongst uh, financial centres, and to help catalyse growth in the sector. Um, because green finance, uh, although it's growing, is still a small uh, part of the totality of the financial system, um, and we think it needs con to continue to grow. And in terms of definitions, we use uh, the following definitions in our index work. First, on financial centres, focusing on places with an intense concentration um, of financial activity involving an interlocking sector, financial sectors and transactions. Um, and on green finance, the basic greenness uh, measure is any financial services activity that results in positive change for the environment uh, and society. Um, and they, those definitions underpin uh, the way we uh, look at the index. Now, very briefly, before I come on to the index results on the methodology, um, the index is a factor assessment index that uses a range of uh, instrumental factors, quantitative data series um, on business, sustainability, human capital, and infrastructure. And for each city um, in our research program, we assess their score in each of these uh, instrumental factors. We then also survey the opinions of finance professionals on the depth and quality um, of green finance in financial centres across the world and, and they provide assessments um, of depth and quality for each of the centres that they know. We then use a machine learning algorithm to combine the instrumental factors and survey assessments uh, into a single index um, and <clears throat> that is the um, approach that we've taken uh, to de developing our indices for some years. First of all, um, the reason for using both um, data measures and assessments is that data measures are often historical and out of date, whereas uh, assessments are quite often uh, to the minute or uh, indeed looking a little bit ahead. Um, and uh, secondly, that we um, can fill in the gaps in both of the data series uh, by looking at correlations between the two. So first, a few notes on the assessments provided to underpin the index. Um, those providing assessments of green finance in financial services um, are drawn from a broad range of the financial services industry. Um, you'll see that both the um, banking, professional services, policy and public finance, investment uh, and knowledge sectors are very well uh, reflected. 
and respondents come across the world, although currently with more responses from Western Europe, Asia Pacific and North America than from other regions, uh, perhaps reflecting the emphasis on green finance in different parts of the world. And the quantitative data series, the instrumental factors that I mentioned, um, are, are grouped into four areas of competitiveness, sustainability, infrastructure, human capital, and business. Uh, once we've produced the index, we analyze the closeness of the correlation between the instrumental factors and the index results. And the table here shows the uh, results for depth and quality in terms of the R-squared correlation. And you will see that for both depth and quality, the highest correlated factors are not to do with financial sector development or the green bond market. Uh, what they're to do with um, is a focus on cities as sustainable, innovative places um, with good pools of talent. And there does seem to be a uh, pattern showing that where um, a place uh, gives attention uh, to sustainability um, in the round, not just in finance, um, then it has an effect also um, on their uh, ability to deliver uh, green finance because the um, environment in which people are working uh, supports um, that initiative. Um, we measure depth and quality in the GGFI um, really because we want to understand both the intensity of green finance work that's taking place in a centre um, as well as the uh, quality of advice and delivery in those centres. Um, because as I mentioned earlier, the uh, amount of green finance going on needs to grow um, by uh, quite a margin. Um, and looking at the depth and how far um, green finance goes into a market, we think is important alongside uh, the quality measure. Um, <clears throat> you should be able to get, um, see now a link I've just sent you to a uh, news article based this morning on City AM, um, which <clears throat> gives some details of the index results. Um, but in terms of headlines for the uh, GGFI 5, first of all, um, the <clears throat> uh, top ranking centres. First, on the depth of green finance, um, uh, the ratings of cities have improved throughout the index. So the uh, last columns in this, um, in this sense that there have been increases in the ratings throughout the index, including at the top of the table as shown here. Um, this may well show increased confidence um, in green finance. Um, and if it continues, then that, that is a, a good sign that people in financial markets um, are uh, judging that green finance is on the up. There's little change in the top ranked centers uh, for depth with Amsterdam and Luxembourg leading the way. Both Geneva and Vienna have entered the top 10, uh, easing out Montreal and Vancouver. Um, and so we have, um, you know, apart from Montreal at number nine, um, all the top 10 ranking centers uh, for depth are from Western Europe. Um, I will come on to what's happening in other parts of the world uh, later in the presentation. In terms of quality, um, again, uh, not that much change in the uh, grouping um, of who are around in the top 10. Um, and, and ratings again have generally improved. And at the top of the table, London and Amsterdam retain first and second places. And we can plot the uh, depth and quality ratings of centers against each other. And we find a close correlation between um, you know, the measures of depth and quality uh, in the index. However, there are um, examples of uh, centers that stand out from the line. Uh, for example, New York. Uh, and London uh, to the quality side of the line, suggesting that they are providing better quality green finance than uh, the amount of green finance against the uh, totality of their financial market. On the other side of the line, places like Amsterdam, Luxembourg, Copenhagen, um, and Seoul, for example, um, perceived to have more depth of green finance than necessarily uh, the quality, uh, which re represents a kind of specialization uh, in green finance. And while the index um, takes account of the instrumental factors, um, sorry, I'll, I'll just pause there. Um, the, the point of, the, of that, this slide is to say that um, some leading financial centers um, 
as measured by the Global Financial Centers Index, which ranks financial centers for their overall competitiveness, um, score much less well in the Global Green Finance Index than they do in the GFCI. Many leading centers, um, places like Hong Kong, New York, um, do not score terribly well in the Green Finance Index, whereas they do in the General Competitiveness Index. Um, only London uh, is in the top 10 um, in both the GFCI uh, and the GGFI, um, and it, that has been a, a feature of um, the index over time. It'll be very interesting to see whether um, the leading financial centers um, make efforts to improve their green finance offering, um, because we certainly need uh, more green finance to take place. Just going back to sustainability uh, factors and factor rankings, um, we're able to um, produce uh, indices uh, based on the, all the factors we use, but then we also look at the individual areas of competitiveness using only the instrumental factors from that area. Uh, this uh, chart shows the uh, comparison between uh, the index based on all factors in the ranking and the index based on sustainability factors only in the ranking. We see that some centers, including Zurich, uh, Frankfurt, and Oslo, um, you know, benefit greatly from this analysis um, if we just run the index using factors that are uh, linked to sustainability. Um, this is really useful um, to know, um, both for financial centers and for people looking at where to base businesses, um, as to um, where in the world and which centers um, are uh, addressing particular types of um, the infrastructure of their economy at any one time. Just in terms of the leading centers on depth and quality, um, the, the leading centers have continued to improve their ratings, although the rate of increase for quality for London is slower than others in the group, and I'll come on to that again in just a moment. I'll go through each of the uh, regions um, to see what happens. Western European centers continue to dominate the GGFI <coughs> with 10 centers in the top 10 for both depth and quality, uh, Geneva and Vienna coming equal 10th. Um, Amsterdam and London top the table, but London's position uh, is under challenge. And if we did a straight line trend of the change in ratings in the index uh, moving forward from GGFI, um, both Amsterdam and Zurich would overtake London by the time uh, the next edition of the index is published in six months' time. So there's real competition at the very top uh, of the table in Europe. In the Asia Pacific, sorry, in the Asia Pacific reason, um, Sydney comes top of the tables both for depth and quality, um, overtaking Beijing in the uh, depth index and retaining its place at the top of the quality index. Uh, Shanghai has lost little ground in this edition of the index. Uh, particularly in the quality measure, um, and Seoul continued to follow in the depth rankings, uh, but regained some ground in quality. And you'll see that um, the Asia Pacific centers in the index uh, mostly are in the mid range rank of the index. Um, they are you know, delivering solid performance. I'll come on to talk a bit about China later in the presentation, as uh, in this edition of the GGFI, uh, we've published a supplement on green finance activity uh, in China. In North America, uh, Montreal continues to lead uh, the North American region for depth and San Francisco for quality. Um, Canadian centers still continue to outperform uh, the US in terms of both depth and quality. Um, and there's tough competition between uh, Canadian centers um, who are you know, vying for, with each other for their positioning in green finance um, and you know, are doing well in terms of their global performance. In Eastern Europe and Central Asia, Prague tops the rankings once again uh, for depth and quality. Uh, Moscow fell back a little in this edition of the index. In Latin America and the Caribbean, Sao Paulo uh, again took first place in both depth and quality, although fell a little in the rankings for both measures. Uh, Cayman Islands rose six places in the depth rankings. In the Middle East and Africa, uh, Casablanca retained its leading uh, position in the index uh, in the Middle East and Africa, 
although it fell again fell back slightly in the rankings. New entrant um, last last time to the uh, index Tel Aviv uh, retained its second place in the region, um, and it does look as if competition is intensifying in this region as well. Another analysis we undertake in developing the GGFI is to compare, on the one hand, the weighted average assessment uh, given to centres, with on the other hand the overall rating uh, after we've run it through the model and taking account. Um, of the instrumental factors. The difference between the two uh, we call reputation advantage and centers with a positive advantage are being assessed um, in the survey potentially as better than the underlying historic data measures would suggest. Uh, either because people see them improving um, or because they are known being known to have taken, taken action. The table here shows the centers with the highest reputation advantage. It just does suggest the reputation might be outstripping the reality of activity in the center, um, but they might be on the way up. At the other end of the uh, reputation advantage scale is the centers with negative reputation advantage. Um, this suggests that um, these centers are actually performing better than their reputation uh, suggests, um, and the hard data measures would seem to suggest that they should be uh, ranked higher in the GGF, GGFI if it were based simply on uh, hard data measures. Um, so these are the cities who are doing good things, but people uh, are not aware uh, of all the good work they're doing. I said I'd come on to uh, China. We've published in this edition of the uh, Global Green Finance Index uh, a supplement on a particular issue of interest, in this case, uh, green finance in China. Um, one key message is the room for growth in the green bond market and green finance market in China. There's been a rapid uptake of green bonds, um, but they made up only about half a percent of China's uh, 41.5.1 trillion RMB bonds market in 2019. Um, China is working um, with international partners, both at the EU and the UN, uh, to develop further its labeling and taxonomy um, to try to ensure that it can have access uh, to global markets um, to continue to build its green bond uh, business. In, in other <clears throat> news on China, um, China is developing its um, green finance very strongly um, and has started uh, moving into mandatory environmental reporting um, and bringing um, green fintech and green loans into the market. However, the issue of stranded fossil fuel um, assets in China is starting to gain attention um, and this could be a, a major issue uh, which needs both thought uh, and action. Uh, with that I would like to hand over uh, to Michael Minnelli, our chairman, um, to give us a few uh, thoughts about where next for the GGFI. Well thank you Mike. Uh... That's a lot to take in, folks, and as co-author of the report, I wanted to just touch on a few comments, principally, I think, about policy. Uh, next slide, Mike. Um, one of the things we concluded in uh, doing the research was uh, to ask a number of fairly pointed questions about what was really on practitioners' minds. There's often uh, an unwillingness, I find, to confront green finance and to talk about what it means in practice. Why should finance of any color uh, be different than just raw uh, red and black? And in the case of green, you can see before you a spider diagram looking at a variety of issues that people might consider uh, to be appropriate linked tightly with green finance and three really stand out from everything else uh, out of out of 20 of them there uh, one I'll point to the bottom left is policy and regulatory frameworks uh, on the top uh, right at roughly about one o'clock climate change and on the bottom right roughly about five uh, basically investor demand so what we're seeing here is a uh, the entire field boiling down uh, into only three drivers and two of those drivers climate change and investor man demand are clearly related and two of those drivers uh, at least politically climate change 
and policy and regulatory frameworks are also important. Now, in this year, when we've seen Davos full of the Greta and the good, haha, uh, one of the things that I'm beginning to realize as we're doing these studies is that this is one area of finance that more than any other really tracks what's going on in the policy and regulatory framework. This sets the scene, and without that, there is really little to be talked about at all. Uh, Lois pointed out that finance is the lever uh, for us to achieve our sustainability goals. And if anything else uh, here, we're seeing that policy and regulatory frameworks are the lever that will help us achieve our finance goals. Next slide, Mike. Sorry, one before that, Mike. Right. Um, there we go. Now, this, I think, translates into what are some of the most interesting areas of green finance. And here, I think it's worth paying just a little bit of attention to this spider diagram. Again, large areas are being ignored. So natural capital valuation, you might see as important. ESG analytics, well, I'm afraid a lot of the folks here don't. Green tech venture capital. The carbon markets of all things, the talk of everybody from 1997 until 2007 doesn't even feature at all. So what are the most interesting areas? Well, uh, two of them are fairly boring, sustainable infrastructure finance and renewable energy investment, which you could easily treat just as energy investment and infrastructure finance. And then of course, we have the poster child for the sector, green bonds. Uh, being way, way out there as well. Well, green bonds have uh, come under a lot of pressure lately, uh, an extra expense on what you might consider a normal bond issued for green purposes. I happen to think that there's a little bit more mileage in the area of bonds. In particular, we've seen the issuance of policy performance bonds shoot up in the last 18 months as firms such as Louis Dreyfus, Enel, uh, Nokia, Hermes have been issuing uh, some of these, which are fascinating. Uh, what they do is they tie interest payments directly to achievable ESG or sustainability targets. Now, interesting as they are, uh, they're a fairly new area, and they might mean that green bonds in future continue to be a hot topic. But what we're seeing here is that practitioners basically are waiting on policy uh, to drive areas of sustainable infrastructure and energy investment. So not, not a lot really in this sector other than our poster child of green bonds to differentiate it in a product sense uh, from other areas of finance. And my final slide, Mike, is just to draw some conclusions from a number of the things that Mike spoke about there. Um, it is very clear that this is a hot topic area. Uh, growing confidence is research speak uh, for well-marketed. Uh, green cities are doing well, uh, so if you are a green city already in the round where you have focused on sustainability at a local or regional and a national level, then the finance sector is strong and perceived to be strong. And this, of course, as Mike alluded to, uh, is uh, strongest in Western Europe, where the topic has been intense for some time. The longer established centers that have been deep into fossil fuel financing uh, do tend to fare worse for depth than quality. There seem to be good financial centers, but clearly have a checkered history of financing what suits. And finally, as we can see, there is a premium to be gained from showing some leadership in either innovation or particular sectors or products. Uh, again, here we see that uh, northern, uh, sorry, that Western Europe uh, does quite well in demonstrating that kind of leadership. And I think when you read the report, particularly the supplement on green finance in China, which is uh, quite deep and written uh, in conjunction uh, with Wang Yao, uh, who is the expert there, you'll see that China potentially is about to demonstrate significant leadership and therefore could increase enormously across all fields of green finance. So in conclusion, for me, uh, green finance, when it's normalized, 
ought to fade away. It ought to become uh, a sector that's just any other type of normal finance. But at the moment, uh, it is seen to be still a slightly specialist, although rapidly uh, growing aspect of finance as we see it. Thank you very much, Mike. Well, thank you, Michael. Um, we do have um, a, around about 10 minutes, which isn't very long, to get through uh, questions. Um, and we've had some questions um, questions in. Um, if I might, I'll uh, read those out so that we all hear them and ask uh, members of the panel to, to comment. Um, and first of all, a question um, on this or the current state of the world, I guess, and this one might be for you, Michael. Um, asking whether the index might need to change its focus in the slipstream of return to norm normality uh, after the uh, current health crisis has run its course. Um, and it may be too early to, to, to really say where we, this kind of research will uh, develop. But Michael, I wonder whether you had any uh, thoughts on that on that question. Well, uh, we could dwell at length speculating about uh, coronavirus and its impact. I think there are a few things uh, that do come to mind. One, looking ahead, it's quite clear that the authorities have felt that largely uh, bypassing the financial system has been the way to address this crisis. Uh, I say that in the sense of obviously lockdown and uh, direct rules of various forms may well be necessary and what we're going through. But it's interesting that in the financial aspects of the economic crisis that uh, is associated uh, with COVID-19, we've seen that the authorities are looking effectively at direct payments and things like that and not counting on the financial system to provide liquidity or loans. I think this is something that might come back to bite the financial system in four or five months. You weren't there during the financial crisis. Heck, you caused it. And when we had another crisis, you really weren't core, a core utility uh, to solving it. You were just a core utility for payments. Um, now, this could, in fact, have ramifications on green finance and lead to more direct public sector investment and therefore make the sector a little bit uh, less interesting. Uh, the other thing I, I think is we're going to see a lot of analysis post-crisis uh, about deaths and death rates. We're taking some pretty interesting decisions uh, in terms of economic impact for a relatively small number of people. Uh, and I'm not trying to belittle the crisis in any sense, but we're looking at sort of the number of people in the UK who die from road deaths in a year or two years. So as we look back, uh, one of the most interesting points I saw made over the past week was that uh, to date something like 77,000 people might have been saved in China by coronavirus simply because of the reduced pollution levels. So those two things to me, what's the role of the financial system in solving some of our big societal issues I think will be questioned and I think we'll see a, a much harder and deeper analysis about the impact of the environment on health and longevity. Michael, thank you very much. Um, the next question, I think, is probably for George, um, if you uh, wouldn't mind trying to pick this one up. The question is uh, um, whether there's any sign there's been any turning away from the green agenda uh, by governments, um, you know, talking both about um, governments in Europe, London, uh, and in the US, uh, by asset managers and industries. Um, and so the question is, you know, has there been a turning away from the green agenda? Uh, by governments and uh, what the impact might be. Thanks, Mike. Yes, I can see the reasons why people would not so much turn away from the green agenda, but ignore it for the time being, because everything in all of our lives for the past two weeks, let us say, has been dominated by the virus. But I think the the role of clients in this is very important. And in some discussions over the past week, um, with wealth management in particular, one of our key membership areas, there's no doubt at all that clients are still aware of the importance of matters green, matters responsible finance. We see green finance as being part of the whole responsible finance um, way of doing things, that we should all be taking much more responsibility for the future. I had a WhatsApp conversation two nights ago with my 
son and his partner and two small grandchildren. And it suddenly dawned on me that the people who are paying for all this government funding right now are not me and not my children, but my grandchildren, who in you know 30 years' time will still be paying off these huge debts. So I think there's likely to be a, um, a growth in the importance of, if you like, good ancestors. And certainly a number of our um, wealth management firms have seen not just a, a lingering, but a growing interest in what's happening with uh, investment money, both personal investment money, pension funds, and so on. There are some issues which Michael's chart raised in an interesting way about ESG analytics, where you know there are some very difficult questions being asked even still by clients who think they're invested in green funds and see in their portfolio, let's say BP, very respectable company doing you know, great job on the environment and so on, but perhaps not the best. But BP scores extremely well on the G of ESG, very good governance and has been for many years. Um, but it's not necessarily what a number of investors investing in a green fund, um, where they'd like to see their money. So I think while governments are, you know, inevitably, and I would say rightly, maybe taking their eye off the green agenda right now, um, Michael talked about the Greta and the good, ho-ho. I think we haven't by any means heard the end of Greta. Um, there was some outrage over our kitchen table this morning when a certain sports apparel company had decided, then changed its mind to stay open to sell more um, cheap products um, against government guidance. And I think there will be new attitudes towards consumerism. Thanks, Mike. Very much. Um, and next uh, question, I think, is one that uh, Lois might be able to pick up. Uh, the question is that uh, for ESG, the question, are there uh, any prevailing frameworks for measuring and scoring companies and their organizations in a way that enable accurate comparisons, uh, such as the SASB framework uh, in State Street and BlackRock? Um, and do we think there, there are any industry standards, whether SASB or, or others? Yes, um, a, a common question. I, I, WBCSD is is uh, framework neutral, as we say. However, I, and for whoever asked this question, an interesting resource for you to look at is something called the Reporting Exchange, www.reportingexchange.com. And in order to answer the very question that the questioner has asked, and one that we hear a lot from our members, we um, set up this online free platform with partners that monitors and records all national and international voluntary and mandatory provisions that directly or indirectly affect the way in which companies report on ESG matters. So naturally, GRI, SASB, CDP, all those sorts of um, corporate reporting dialogue member frameworks are on that platform, along with um, regulatory developments such as the EU NFR. Now, from doing that work, what we have been able to see is some patterns emerging. We've been able to identify where there is coalescence between what one might call requirement developers, i.e. those asking companies to produce information about the types of information they want. And if you look at WBCSD's last Reporting Matters publication on our website, you'll see that we've produced a little table that summarizes where we see coalescence around certain requests for information that are commonly asked for by yes SASB, yes CDP and others. So I, I think in answer to this question, rather than saying that there is a framework that is becoming a standard, I, I haven't seen evidence of that, but I have seen evidence of where there is coalescence between standard setters about certain things. I'll just add briefly, much of the coalescence is around what one might call operational metrics and indicators of things that can be observed, measured, audited, and that, that relate to previous periods, where we think there is work to be done. And, and I'm not sure that there's any single standard that currently can help us with this, is with the more forward-looking uh, information types and you know developing uh, what we hear investors are interested in, which is the measures of resilience and the evidence of the plan and how that plan is to be executed. Uh, Lois, thank you very much. Um, we're running short of time, but we have two questions still to look at. Uh, the first one is a question about what overlaps we see between digital finance 
and green finance. Um, I'm going to start off with a couple of comments and Michael may uh, have some thoughts as well. Um, one of the things we are uh, considering and thinking about um, is the new um, areas that digital uh, finance allows finance to reach into, um, and in particular, how that might address the uh, question of inequality and the whole equality agenda as part of the sustainable development goals. So we're looking um, not only at digital finance in terms of how does it uh, potentially replace um, other forms of finance, but also um, are there ways in which digital finance uh, and fintech could specifically help uh, to open up uh, financial products uh, to the unbanked and people who otherwise would have difficulty accessing uh, financial uh, services? Um, and in terms of sustainability, that uh, may well be a contribution. Uh, Michael, do you want to add anything to that? Well, yes, Mike. I think the great potential for uh, the digital finance to help in the green finance space is uh, getting back to the, the, the real basic element of adjusting behavior. To date, most of the behavioral adjustments that green finance imply are uh, quite high level and one-off and fairly indirect. So, for example, by uh, applying green, uh, using green finance tools, you'll get a green bond. This might give you a slightly lower interest rate on a biomass project that you probably should have done anyway. Uh, this is all very indirect and soft, uh, soft stuff. The real potential for digital finance is every minute of every day to adjust real behavior amongst people and firms in real time based on real evidence. Now, that's the potential, but so far we haven't seen that. Most of the applications out there have been about generating or raising awareness. And this has some beneficial aspects. I was afraid myself of the potential, uh, which I might call unintended consequence of the plastic straw ban movement and things like that. Uh, those fears have largely been unrecognized. Uh, but there are subtleties. Uh, so when, for example, should you walk or take a bus? Uh, what, which product should you buy on the supermarket shelf? These are all of the things that digital finance has a potential opportunity to affect. Uh, so far, uh, I think we're quite a ways from doing that. And that's what gets me quite excited is adjusting the behavior of everybody uh, around the planet in real time in terms of true sustainability, uh, not just pop and PR. Uh, Michael, thank you very much. Uh, we have one last question. I'd like to invite um, all three panelists, George, Lois, and Michael, in turn, uh, to give a very short answer because we're short on time. But the question is, um, what would we want to see addressed in green finance at the COP26 uh, taking place in Glasgow in November? Um, so just a, a, a big policy idea for green finance that we'd like to see uh, people addressing at the COP. Uh, George first, if I may. I think very briefly, finding the right way to finance the transition, because the numbers involved are so big, we need to come up with some very innovative ways, as the government is doing right now on the, uh, the coronavirus crisis, uh, to finance the huge transition needed. That's it. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Lois, one, one big policy idea. Yes, well, having having worked in tax for many, many years, the difference I find between green finance or some aspects of it in tax is, you know, perhaps the, the, um, the lack of definition. So my big suggestion would be to have a clear definition and objective for green finance and um, some criteria that enable others to assess whether and to what extent those objectives have been satisfied by things that purport to be green finance. Uh, many thanks, Lois. Uh, Michael, a, a, a big thought. Well, what I would love to see is a government putting its money where its mouth is so that the specialty of green finance might fade away. My example would be, why can't a government, perhaps the host government, the United Kingdom, issue a policy performance bond tied to its 2050 net zero uh, carbon target. So a bond that basically every year would pay 3.3% extra 
if we fail to make our target 30 years hence. But if we make our target, the government gets free money and we, people who need to hedge government policy, have actually got something rock solid to hedge against. I'd be thrilled to bits if we could have such a bond that really tied our government financially to the target, not just some legally binding thing where it gets to slap its wrists in 2050 if it fails to make it, but something that means people in finance can really commit uh, to going green, not just to green finance itself. Uh, thank you very much, Michael. Um, we are just out of time. Um, it just remains for me to, first of all, thank you uh, for your attendance. Um, it's been uh, good to do this um, globally uh, through a webinar um, approach. Um, GF GGFI 6 will be published in uh, September 2020, all being well, um, and we look forward to that. Um, we will be posting um, both uh, the presentation slides and indeed a video recording of this webinar uh, on our website, so you'll be able to uh, get hold of that and we'll try and email uh, that out to you as well. Um, please do complete the GGFI survey if you possibly can. Um, and just remains for me to thank our panelists, um, George Littlejohn of the uh, Chartered Institute uh, for Securities and Investment. Uh, thank you very much for hosting us today. Uh, to Lois Guthrie of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Um, fascinating, and thank you very much for your contribution. Uh, and finally, to Michael Manelli, uh, Chairman of ZN. Um, and uh, we also would like to thank you uh, for your attendance uh, and your attention. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we look forward to uh, meeting you virtually or otherwise uh, in the future. Thank you and bye-bye.